0: This is the Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or faint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question and answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing one million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening, and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. we combine two of those uh, with our current guests, Professor Stephen Siraj and Sebastian Sarovsky. Stephen Siraj uh, is a, uh, an experienced uh, policymaker practitioner and was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the early 2000s, seeing over more than two billion in global aid and over 200,000 personnel as well. He was selected as the co-chair of the G8 Crime and Terrorism Group representing the White House in the aftermath of 9-11. Welcome to Sebastian, who is here as, a, as our ex- extra, extra special guest who has been working as a volunteer at the Podkabakki Regional Office of the Polish Red Cross uh, and is a founder of Lion Environmental, uh, Independent Environmental Consultancy. I'm thrilled to have these uh, gentlemen here with us tonight, very much looking forward to this discussion. To kick things off, turning to you, uh, Professor Stephen, just wanted to go to you first to hear from your perspective how have things changed on the on the Polish border since we first uh, we
1: first met? Has there been a significant improvement, or as far as you 're concerned, nothing's changed Thank you again for putting this together as you may recall at that point, I was pretty emotional i 've seen a lot of stuff from Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan around the world but when i when I arrived here shortly after. This war had started, just seeing the humanity coming across and and the struggles they had, the women and children there. But what was more shocking to me, it was shocking to a lot of people that were saying things behind the scenes, including some senior UN officials, was how chaotic it was, how there was no controls, how there were people that looked like out of a carnival atmosphere, where wearing George Washington hats and, and capes and approaching children with candy. It looked like the biggest trafficking nightmare in terms of human trafficking or crime you could possibly imagine for all the goodwill that the Polish people were putting forward. And I left very concerned but hopeful because people were saying this was going to be a priority. We were going to lock this down. We were going to change it. We were going to, we're going to block it off. This is at Medica where you see senators and people appearing for pictures all the time. Medica Poland, which is the major crossing and the major escape route for these people through this. The thing and the reason why I'm so excited to have Sebastian here to describe it is when I came back, I expected things to be solved Partially, at least, to see the same level of disarray and chaos in certain levels that I had seen before and to see them not addressed was even kind of more heartbreaking. To hear stories about people being trafficked, someone trafficking two women and their children in a Tesla to the very hotel where the UN is staying and being busted about it. Holes and gaps in the, you know, 300 meters away from the border crossing where people are going back and forth, you know, seven women in a van that were stopped to raise that with the military and with people here and have them kind of dismiss it or say, well, we don't, we are trying to do it, but we can't do much. And, and it was shocking. And then to talk to Sebastian, who has played kind of a critical leadership role coming here and dedicating himself to do this and kind of, giving a lot of on the ground facts about how the strain is impacting people and how these trafficking risks that I can see as being potentially the biggest human trafficking and crime disaster of our lifetimes continuing to unfold. I think he's the perfect person to address what he's seen here as a Polish person that's that's been on the front lines and really experienced it. So I'd like to turn it over to him and, and let him really relay what he's seen on the ground at these border points and crossings and, and 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 what he thinks we need to do to go forward and just really quickly they have set up a GoFundMe um quickly a few days ago and if people want to give money directly that i can pass on directly to this local red cross on the ground uh, i think they'd really appreciate because he's going to tell you about all these talk that these big agencies are raising money it's not getting the people on the ground
2: or securing what's going on so if that's so uh, thank you very much uh, stephen as a bit of a background I need to start with um, a little explanation of what has changed and what you haven't mentioned basically about a month ago when you first arrived at the uh, border crossing in medica we were experiencing uh, traffic of around between 80 to hundred thousand people crossing the border in our region through four border crossings in medica it is the biggest foot border crossing in our region I probably wouldn't lie. If I say that about seven to 800,000 people went across uh, that wow. place over the last uh, month or so, from Bo- uh, Ukraine to uh, Poland. So we were ex- experiencing uh, huge traffic, huge numbers then, and it was uh, really like a burning fire. Now the numbers uh, dropped significantly. And uh, now we are experiencing in our region, um, through uh, four border crossings, around 12,000 refugees coming from Ukraine into Poland every day. Wow. So this is still around uh, 60,000 a week, which, you know, for us, um, having experienced huge numbers at the beginning, and uh, the the fight was immense, inhumane, I would say, uh, for all of the hardworking volunteers uh, working with us and with other NGOs there on the ground trying to provide basic necessities to the refugees uh, and show them that th- this is a safe land for them. Once they managed to cross the border after whatever many days in journey and in a very hard journey certain, sometimes we get because we had quite difficult weather conditions in uh, March. We had a fairly warm February, but March was pretty cold Um, so we had sub-zero temperatures only recently last week we had uh, a lot of snow like a month ago in order to get into Poland people quite often had to queue for many hours before they got in and once they got in uh, a lot of charities were just trying to uh, make sure that they are uh, taken care of that is they have a warm meal right away and they have uh, some uh, basic foodstuffs uh, especially for children to get them ready for whatever is uh, coming their way ahead of time. That is, you know, they, once they into Poland and in Medica in particular, they still have to go on a train or on a on a coach to travel to the reception center, and then from from which they still have to travel onwards. So there's a reception center. There they are shower facilities, uh, You know they can change clothes, they can take some rest, and then they, they go to other cities and towns across Poland and then the rest of the EU and the world, really, because we know that some of them actually jump on planes and leave uh, to meet their relatives uh, in Canada and US. And The situation is somewhat different because the numbers that we see, are not really terrifying us because we're used to something completely different but if you really look at the overall picture, 60,000 a week, it's still a significant number right? right. So uh, it's, uh, of course it, you know it's difficult to compare the numbers before to numbers now but they're, they're still you saying nothing's changed? You're probably right because there are still many gaps, uh, too many gaps. There's no silver bullet for all of these issues and uh, there are literally you know hundreds of different small and and big issues and um if you work on the ground um like myself and my my friends and my colleagues that generously showed up uh, from the very beginning of this um conflict we had uh people from uh, you know it, Italian uh, Red Cross from German Red Cross Romanian Red Cross showing up at our office and saying hey we're here we're ready to go you know we i'm staying here for two weeks what can i do and Mm -hmm. we got these guys engaged and they were great um a lot of people like this that were trying to really manage fires and firefight from the very beginning and then you had guys like myself because my my background is business and i set up a organizations before uh, so I kind of tried to assess the situation what's really going on and <laughs> the assessment was somewhat difficult the amount of uh, refugees was so big and um, and then if you think of these numbers and if you think that every second um, refugee was a mother with mother with children and then the elderly people there there was literally no healthy men crossing the border just just women with children and the elderly after queuing up for many many hours and crossing the border with uh, you know wet clothes uh frostbites without medicine so they they had a lot of issues and we are trying to tackle these so as the red cross from the very beginning the local red cross we try to make sure that these folks that are going across the border have at least uh their medical needs met at the reception centers and at the border crossings we were trying to put out our teams our paramed- paramedics and doctors and ambulances and in, in reception centers you know where there are better facilities we uh manned these facilities 24 7 right from the beginning you know from day two i would say and we had uh a luxury of having access to many paramedics and many uh, medical teams that actually we invited over from other local Red Crosses within Poland. They came here and they were uh, in groups and they were rotating for like three, four days. Some of them stayed for a week. And, um, you know, we had paramedics that uh, were not associated with the Red Cross, but they just, you know, some of them were not even uh, in this field anymore for, for many years. But, um, you know, I, I met people that were um, journalists uh, working on the radio station. One guy in particular said, I trained pa- a paramedic, but I haven't been doing this for a long time. But when I heard about this crisis, here I am, you know, I'm sitting in an ambulance and and treating people
0: just just to chime in there because you know there's a there's a lot to unpack it's difficult I think at least for me it's quite challenging we read things in the news we have the images and generally it's it's so different to be there in person and to build on what you're talking about because one of the things that I was I was hearing as being a a problem was the was the allocation of funds uh, and the ability for them to be distributed effectively uh, and accessed effectively by the right people so just starting with you, Sebastian, I'd be curious to hear about what your thoughts are on that. Has, has there been an improvement in sort of the acquisition of, of, of financial support and materials to help improve the, the humanitarian flows? Or is or it still very uh, discoordinated in that sense? And then maybe we can uh, jump to, to Stephen for his thoughts.
2: I think that the, the, the situation uh, in this regard has gone worse. At the beginning of the crisis, uh, you know, our local uh, Red Cross, uh, we... Um, Rented uh, one extra warehouse. We actually uh, used our uh, warehouse in Chevorsk to ship aid into Ukraine on rail. We had another uh, extra warehouse in one of the universities in Zhytomyr, and it was full with aid that came uh, through different local Red Crosses or different countries. Just people, you know, they really want to help. But then after the crisis went on and on, and we, used the, the, you know, these supplies. Uh, uh, started running out. We realized that, uh, ordinary people are kind of running out of, uh, ideas for help. Maybe not ideas so much, but just, just don't want to, um, help that much as they were doing at the beginning. Um, so our stocks were diminishing, whereas we were constantly meeting several organizations that were just promising things uh, to us that you know funds okay this they, they were saying that this is a huge humanitarian crisis and there will be funds coming our way and so on and so forth and I've had numerous meetings like this with various organizations um and then finally uh, like three or three weeks into the conflict we uh, started seeing uh, big NGOs under um, a UN umbrella, such as IOM, UNHCR, WHO, UNICEF. And they wanted to meet us, uh, like people on the ground. And we started meeting them in the hope that we we're actually going to raise um, some funds. Up until now, we got nothing from none of any, any of these guys. There were some uh, smaller charities, Jesus Christ Church of the Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. and they were of a great help for us. They couldn't provide us uh, funds directly. Thanks to them, we managed to get some IT equipment to really necessary to register the refugees with, and some printers to print out like uh, safe travel posters for refugees. And also we, they got us a lot of foodstuff and scientific products that we were, we were distributing uh, directly uh, to the hands of refugees. Overall, this was like $20,000 that uh, this Latter-day Saints uh, Church provided to us. Overall, I can just say that uh, we're still trying really hard to uh, fundraise. We're struggling and then we are being offered handshakes I think this is a great
1: point to hammer home. You, you listen to Sebastian talking about them scraping together $20,000 or $16,000 for a van. and This is not some backwater. This is the main point of escape for all the Ukrainians. And then you see people on TV talking about how the U.N. raised $50 million or this organization raised $30 million. But then when you look at people on the ground and they can't get a van to transport people here, or they can't build a fence to stop people from coming in and trafficking. I mean, this is the big disconnect that I see at this macro level. You've got all these organizations raising, going on TV and talking about all these millions and billions they're raising, but it's not getting to the ground to help people. And then the second thing that Sebastian said that's really critical is you have what I'd call like – Donor exhaustion and volunteer exhaustion, because when you first see this, everyone rushes to the border and they take two or three weeks off of work and they dive in and they have all this energy and they can use that as the engine to push this forward. But then that dies out and you see people have to go home and and the Polish people holding people in their homes get exhausted. So those two factors, even though the numbers of people have gone down. There's still people living here. There's still people coming across. There's still these challenges. And, and how do you meet that when the bureaucracies are still so slow at getting the money to the people like Sebastian that are on the ground trying to scrape together money for a van as, when they need it to help
2: people? I mean, absolutely. I, I wouldn't agree more with you because th- th- there is money out there somewhere. And I heard from uh, guys from Norway that uh, were a proper um, crisis management folks that uh, came over right after this crisis started. They were allocated to one of these uh, uh, reception centres and helping refugees uh, day in and day out for a a good two, three weeks. They also uh, knew this from other countries, from like Syria, uh, Iraq, to get this exhaustion because this is really, really hard work. I mean, I've worked hard in my life. There were points that I worked really hard, but this constant... Psychological strain that you get from being in these extreme circumstances and in, the, in this environment, where you have to see firefight, the people, okay. see the people, firefight. You have everybody has some has some kind of a problem, and they, you're trying to help as many people as you can, and you're trying to just constantly firefight. And then there are also the volunteers that they that, you know they can't communicate in their local language. They bring people over with you that they're trying to. They, they also have some kind of issues, so. If you, if you stay in this environment for like two, three days, you really get exhausted. And if you just continue doing that for a certain period of time, you get burned out and then you have to leave or you will be carried away by ambulance. And I saw that happen to some people, right? Because they just think that they, you know, they bulletproof and they can do it forever. No, you can't do it forever. So then you, big organizations, they know about this. So they try to rotate people after like three weeks and that said, they send them home for another th- at least three weeks of rest. And then unfortunately, a lot of this um, has been driven at the grassroots level. There's a significant lack in like coordination and funding so that if uh, even if uh, great guys like these guys I mentioned from Norway, if they come, they are trying to put some structure to this to train guys on the ground. Unfortunately, uh, they train these people that are also staying there for a like, couple of days or a couple of weeks. They leave and that knowledge is gone yeah
0: absolutely so Sebastian just uh Professor Stephen I want to come to you because President Biden actually went to Poland and spoke very much in, in a, an important symbolic area and that galvanized I think quite a lot of reception from uh some of the Polish people from the Eastern European communities and obviously the Ukrainians themselves but from your perspective and then maybe we can jump to to Sebastian for his sort of take what impact do you think that that Biden's visit had uh, motivation, unity, sort of the humanitarian situation. I
1: I think it was great that he came here because, I mean, one thing that that you need to separate is while we're talking about all the challenges here and all the difficulties in the implementation, the Polish people have been phenomenal. I mean, it's hard to imagine how they have taken people into their homes at 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 a level and the sacrifices they have made to adopt these people, you know, these These millions of people pouring into their borders. So I think for him coming to to Poland and saying in Poland his support and kind of making this a place that he did, he put down a flag and say, said, what a great job and tremendous job they've done. I think that was that was a a, a, was a major statement. Uh, So I I think you have to when when we're talking about the difficulties and kind of the aid organizations rolling things out or scrambling to get the security of different government roles. That I think you have to separate from the people. And I think it was great that he came here and said that from the people. I mean, there's a lot of debate about what he said regarding uh, that Putin had to go. And that kind of overshadowed, I think, a lot of the other things that he said in support of what the Polish people have done. But I think. Sebastian is really in a position to say how the Polish people view the relationship with the U.S. I saw there was a Newsweek cover this—I don't know if you saw this today this week—that had the, I think Uh it was the president of Poland holding the hand of, or Joe Biden as a giant holding the hand of the president of Poland. So I don't know if there's tension about how it plays out, but I'm I'm interested to hear your take on on how the Polish people view view what's happening and, and also the
2: relationship with the other powers that are involved in this. I mean, I I completely agree that it's great that Biden uh, came out and uh, he even uh, came to Zeszów, which is, you know, as you you mentioned, only like an hour away from the border. Of of course, I I think that um, his uh, security would not allow him to go any closer to the border. I just do see with his own eyes what is really happening with the refugees over there. But it's but still, I think uh, Yashanka Airport uh, in Jeszow uh, or just outside is one of the most secure ports in the world right now. So if you see all this Air military Board. equipment around, um, so this is this is here for a reason, and of course. Uh, due to our, uh, as in difficult uh, history and difficult relationship between Poland and Russia over centuries now, and you know we've been under their o- occupation for 123 years, not even existing on the map, and then we get, we fought numerous wars, and after Second World War we were under, um, you know, we were one of the s- Soviet satellite countries, um, so to speak, and a lot of people after this, this uh, conflict uh, in Ukraine broke out felt insecure. In Poland, so the fact that Biden came over, he reassured uh, you know, that Article Five,
3: NATO, uh, is uh, valid, and uh, Putin would not dare to step in on even an inch of uh, NATO
2: soil. And that 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 reassurance actually was really appreciated in Poland. And I and I think that uh, you know after this uh, a month or so of the of the conflict right now, and we see that Russians are really perpetrating atrocities across Ukraine. Um, so we know what what Russian uh, soldiers, uh, ordinary folk, are capable of. It's great that he came over, great that he reassured us. Guys like me have a little bit more room or in our heads to manoeuvre, to think about actually providing aid to uh, Ukrainian refugees, you know. We are just uh, talking how bad and how difficult is the situation on the ground with aid and with with, with funds. This is really nothing if you compare this to an armed conflict situation, how bad it's got to be just across the border, just 100 kilometers from where we're sitting here right now. So it's, it's you can't really compare these two situations. So we can complain all night long, but it, it means nothing really because uh, this is the, the refugees here are at least they are safe. You know, as in safe in the general sense because there are all kinds of issues with uh, things that we are trying to get a grasp of and 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 control better that there's uh, you know human trafficking and all the items or big issues associated with it but over there we know that people die every minute yeah. here it's, it's something that we just have to control
0: no I, I feel that very much i think it resonates with a lot of us listening in live but also those of us who listen, listen to this on the podcast and the thing that I want to explore now is is the fact, you know, we've got one leader on one side, but on the other side, and maybe Professor Stephen, you've got thoughts on this, but in the past week, we've had the Hungarian election. Viktor Orban has won again. He won about 53% of the vote. And there was a sizable gap to the to the opposition, which was a opposition a coalition, which was about 35%. So the opposition to Viktor Orban is quite split. Um, and why it's notable is because Hungary and Poland have been a bit of a thorn in the side of the EU for quite a few years, this growing sort of sense of populism. And both of them have sort of had an unofficial pact, which is basically if the EU's ever wanted to kick one of them out of a body or out of the EU as a whole. You have to get a majority, you have to get a unanimous vote from the other 26 member states. But so what will one of them do? They'll block it. And so you can't kick either of them on out. But with the events in Ukraine, we're seeing a very different reaction from the Polish government uh, general sort of state versus what we've seen in the eyes of, of Viktor Orban. And he basically, you know, was saying he appreciates Putin uh, and, and Putin congratulated him on his win. So I'd, I'd be curious, Professor Stephen, what are your takes on that? Do you think that there's going to be a, a bit of a breakaway between these two states? The, both of them are part of the V4 as well, as along with the Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia. So, I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of uh, unity between Hungary and Poland and former Soviet states, and also what impact that might have on on the Hungarian response to the humanitarian crisis.
1: I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in Hungary, and I'm going to let Sebastian talk a bit about the relations between Poland and Hungary and what he's seeing at, at the local level. The one thing that I think that's really fascinating about this, though, at a macro level that americans might struggle to see from our press because we have kind of pitched it as the world is uniting against russia but when you think about it you have hungary that's a, a democracy very close to russia that has sided with putin and the leader has won overwhelmingly you've got india that is the largest democracy in the world which has been neutral towards it then you've got china which is the global super, the rising global superpower in many people's mind and the most populous country in the world you know along with the largest democracy india hold sitting on the sidelines so while we may is the question is are we looking at this through kind of rose colored glasses in a sense in that the, you know that europe and america are aligned mostly i mean again you've got places like hungary kind of as an outlier but is there really this global view that they're going to clamp down on Russia, especially once this dies down, which would be the tragic thing. When you look at what happened in Buka, you look at it happen. Yeah. What else? They've got all this oil leverage on places like Germany and others. Everyone says this is a turning point. This is the last time. But there's huge chunks of the world that you know, even on even on uh, Ukraine's borders, where the where voters are not do not seem super motivated to do a turn against Russia on this front. So I'm I'm really interested to hear Sebastian's view on the Polish-Hungarian relationships and how that changes that as well. I mean, I'm quite surprised really seeing that Viktor
3: Orban won the elections yet again, uh, especially that, uh, you know,
2: these elections only happened uh, this Sunday. And uh, Hungary has direct border
3: with Ukraine. And they also experienced an influx of uh, refugees mm-hmm. uh a lot of whom actually
2: um speak the language. Um mm-hmm. and Hungarian, um, if you look at it from the European perspective is quite different to most of the which is uh, in that area, but due to the you know, Austro Hungarian empire, the, the the shift the borders in this region were shifting historically in uh, different ways. So you have um Uh, You have uh, different uh, national groups living in different countries, and that's quite normal. However, Viktor Orban, uh, he played this card with his relationship with Russia to his advantage Mm. yet again. So he...
3: His message was that, oh, let's um, be for peace uh, for instead of uh, being for the war. Mm-hmm. That is, let's
2: enjoy our relationship with Russia, enjoy uh, free flow of uh, Russian gas um, into the refinery. Poland, immediately after the 24th of February, took Ukraine aside. I didn't hear after last Sunday, I didn't hear anybody from the Polish government actually congratulating Orban, as much as Miroslav uh, Kaczynski, who is kind of really running the show here in Poland, he was a big admirer of Viktor Orban and his methods uh, in Hungary. Now he's nowhere to be seen, mm. uh, nowhere. Uh, he's just probably waiting it out. Mm. Uh, that is, you know, waits until dust settles after the election, and the uh, relationship might be still standing. however, uh, this is not going to fly with the, the Polish society
3: mm-hmm. uh, because we are, we are just so much against Russian
2: invasion over here that if any if there is any show of appreciation of uh, Russia from Hungary and we know that there is and if anybody appreciates Hungary, that means that we're kind of choosing sides mm-hmm. or contradicting Poland has been enjoying uh, three decades of almost uh, non-stop economic growth, and this growth was largely fueled by influx of um, workforce from countries like Ukraine, Belarus, and even Russia, um, because we had the big um, brain drain issues. Where after um, our uh, after 2004, when Poland joined the EU, a lot of people left. Uh, Poland to work and live abroad, especially in Western European Union countries. Uh, but this gap was then uh, filled by Ukrainians. Uh, their skilled and unskilled workforce came here to become, you know, doctors, uh, lawyers, and then uh, construction workers and uh, cleaners. Um, and overall, uh, if you uh, look at it. Uh, So we, the Polish nation uh, has its history with the Ukrainians uh, and it's not, uh, there are times uh, in history that uh, we had wars and uh, there were also atrocities committed on both sides. But overall, uh, we got used to uh, the presence of Ukrainians in large numbers in Poland. So when this happened, uh, so everybody uh, knew Everybody in Poland, or most of people in Poland, knew some a Ukrainian person uh, before February twenty fourth, um, because there were so many of uh, Ukrainians um, living and working um, in Poland, and our universities are full of Ukrainians. Uh, and then uh, there are also many uh, language and cultural similarities between the nations. Uh, so we really, um, and I think that. Uh, everybody the world could see that we uh, welcomed ukrainians with open hand open arms um however uh if you if there's no country in the world that is really um ready to take in millions of people during a course of uh, fortnight this is what basically happened uh so, there are cities like Warsaw, which uh, before uh, the 24th of February uh, was about 2 million people, and now it accommodated additional 350,000 people, okay? And there are cities like that in Poland when the number of refugees, you see them everywhere. Uh, you know, walking the streets, being in parks, being in shopping malls and zoos and swimming pools. You see, like... Uh, a lot of mothers with children all around everywhere. And as much as uh, these guys uh, found safe, um, safe havens in uh, possible homes, a lot of them actually owned properties here. And then whoever was had uh, a little bit more money, they managed to find uh, temporary or, or permanent locations by renting houses. Uh, but, uh, i think uh, as um, unfortunately this crisis is very likely to continue for many months or even years ahead and uh, the trucks that are coming from germany and france uh, full of aid they're also going to uh, stop at some point so what we really need in order to maintain uh, this uh, good relationship between pol Polish people and Ukrainians that are here right now is uh, basically influx of funds from all over, um, because only if this these funds uh, are directed here and spent here, so that also uh, not just the Ukrainian refugees benefit, but also local businesses here benef- benefit uh, from um, from these funds. Uh, you know. Then and only then, uh, this uh, this good relationship uh, will be able to uh, sustain. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, if we just receive truckloads um, of uh, aid, um, it's not going to, to last very long. And as much as everybody uh, that I know has been very uh, keen on helping, you uh, Ukraine refugees and been actually, you know, getting hands dirty. Um, Some people were doing simple things like, you know, making sandwiches and giving out uh, to refugees at uh, railway stations. And so some people were trying to do more sophisticated things like developing apps for safe travel and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, every tool helps, really. Uh, But unfortunately, um, history repeats itself in this matter that um, this... Uh, great kindness at the beginning of uh, Great Crisis uh, is huge at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. then it just it gradually yeah. dies down.
0: So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit the difference between the Polish Red Cross and the International Red Cross, because I think it's uh, it's pretty disconcerting to hear such negative sentiments around, you know, uh, an organisation that has been for around for such a long time and and, and got such a. I think they've been the uh, the recipient of three Nobel Peace Prizes. So if you could talk us through a little bit about that, it'd be very interesting to hear. Maybe we can then uh, jump to Professor Stephen.
2: It's our statutory obligation to help victims of armed conflicts. We are supposed to be neutral uh, during any conflict and apolitical. And we are supposed to just help refugees, uh, victims of armed conflicts. And also uh, our uh, actions uh, should be uh, confidential. It works for, um, it actually has been working out for many years. I'll tell you why. Basically, if you international uh, red cross they are stepping in in armed conflicts and they are supposed to help both sides or whatever many sides are involved in the conflict uh, if they take a side that means that the other side or they are that the other side wouldn't let them pro- provide medical aid to prisoners of war or to pro- to uh, create humanitarian corridors the ceo of international red cross uh, was um, Photographs shaking hands of Sergei Lavrov because he was there to trying to set up the presence on uh, the Russian side to help victims of this conflict on the Russian side. But days before, he actually visited Kiev and he shook hands of Zelensky because he he did the same job on this side of the conflict. And and that's quite normal for the International Red Cross to establish these platforms of, communi- of communication at the state level. And then uh, so that bringing the, I'll call it, troops to bring them to the ground level um, and let them work and save people's lives. So a lot of people might um, actually badmouth International Red Cross for doing this uh, in Russia, but this is actually its statutory obligation to go and establish these uh, these uh, platforms for communication and then send people out. To actually provide help on the ground. And of course, the the International Red Cross is an organization, it's almost military like. So uh, there is a a chain of command, Uh, they have uh, trained and very brave surgeons, uh, paramedic teams, and also crisis management teams. So they just go into armed conflict zones well prepared, uh, but they have to be invited in order to work their mandate. Otherwise, if they're not invited, then they just can't do it. So, in, in order for this uh, invitation to happen, they just have to go and uh, meet people at the state level. Professor Stephen, do you have anything to add
1: to that? I, I think he's, he summarized it very well, and it's it's a it's a very unique international organization. But it shows the challenges of when you have once when you're trying to. Find peace, but at the same time, you have one side doing something that is so shocking to the international community it, it becomes very hard politically for an institution even that 's trying to bridge yeah. those gaps or negotiators to bridge it, especially when you 've got you know the images that you 've seen at Buca and those things coming out it just it just it, it makes you wonder to what degree the Russians or others could be doing those type of things to to make it harder for peace to happen or harder for negotiations to happen. It's uh, It shows you how much the media and coverage and, and the way we interpret things can drive things to, in today's world. I, I'm, I'm reflecting
0: on the fact that on Sunday, you know, we saw the images and videos coming out of Butcher parts of, of Ukraine. And it's like, this is the most documented conflict, I think we could say, and the social media element to this is is just unrivaled. It makes me think of, even though I wasn't around then, the fact that CNN, you know, uh, and, and what they achieved in the Gulf War in '91, mm-hmm. being sort of the first time we had live televised images of of war in real time. Uh, it's just the power of sort of social media, but equally the the negative power, if that makes sense, and, and right. how it can disproportionately affect those who are genuinely well intended. Uh, the last question. I want to go to before we, we open it up to, to the live audience uh, and diversify this uh, awesome social podcasting experience. What have you seen in terms of this return flows? There's been uh, a, a notable I think influx or, or return of sort of particularly men to fight in the uh, military army in recent weeks but also now people are beginning to, to flock back. Uh, the Estonian um, ambassador is returning to, to Kiev and so is Turkey's uh, embassy is reopening. So what about from the humanitarian are you seeing a, a large sort of return of migrants or is it very much still outwards uh, and not much of an inward flight
2: no we're experiencing that a lot of people actually are walking back into ukraine with their luggage as they left about four weeks ago i think at least i heard it from my friends at um, America today that you can see that there are more people actually going back that laden from Ukraine uh, right now. I don't know uh, if this is going to uh, sustain because uh, you know there was this warning that came out from uh, the Ukrainian government to uh, its citizens just uh, today saying that the Russian troops are regrouping and they ask everybody from the potential war zone to actually uh, extract themselves, uh, which means that we might actually get another wave of... Um, Ukrainian uh, refugees uh, hitting uh, Poland right now. But this will only happen if fighting intensifies. Mm. It's really difficult for me to comment on the Russian strategy. You know, They pulled out, they, they attacked uh, from uh, three directions at the beginning, then they realized that this might be a little bit too much. For the time being, so they pulled out from Kiev, at least. At least, and they are now focusing on these two separatist um, regions of uh, Lugansk and uh, Donbass. But I think they have played their ace yet so we might actually uh, see a situation getting worse because before it gets better which means that you know people will be walking in and out some of these refugees they got scared when their uh, cities and towns got got bombarded and they came to Poland a lot of them uh, didn't have any family here and didn't have any um, friends so they were just uh, wandering around and border towns in Poland wondering about next steps and then when they heard that oh it's fairly safe they decided to go back. I know Ukrainian girl that I met uh, straight after this conflict she uh, flew from Boston to Warsaw and uh, she was helping from the kind of a back stage and working uh, with people in Ukraine from Warsaw but she had her sister uh, stuck in a bunker in Mariupol and her sister with uh, her two sons. That was for nine days. Uh, There was no contact between them. And then finally the contact got reestablished and during the first uh, humanitarian corridor, they managed to escape. My friend went into Ukraine uh, to join her sister, and then now they uh, they are hiding in a patient uh, village somewhere. Wow. I just think that there are many people like this. Yeah. So they're staying in Western Ukraine and trying to figure out what you know what their next move would be. Right. I think this is
1: a fascinating question, and it shows you how kind of whipsawed this can become, because. You've got, you know, all these millions that poured out of Ukraine. You've got people going back in, sometimes to resupply because there's not food or medicine yeah. coming on the other side. So they're there I helped one woman carry bags across because she was going to her daughter who had stayed in Ukraine. So they want to provide help there. But then are the people going to resettle in inside Ukraine? Will they be will they remain in Poland? Will they remain in other countries? That's a huge question. And there's a fascinating guy like Sebastian that it may be useful you to talk to sometime he's kind of a guy that's been a bit of a soldier of fortune he's a British guy who worked in the French Foreign Legion um, and I met with him today and he he had been kind of fighting along the front lines providing assistance to people and he had said that he has now gone up through Kyiv and was in Bukha and, and came back down. And he said, now it's basically cleared out. He said he, he was surprised how it had been. That the, the Russians had totally vacated and that it was clear to move back in. But he also said there were millions of displaced people in ukraine trying to decide what are they going to do are they going to stay in lviv are they going to stay in the west are they going to come to poland are they going to go back and you've got these huge people huge mass of people right now where it all questions are up in the air and and it's you know and again it's gonna how it impacts poland how it impacts the world is kind of yet to be seen
0: Awesome, thanks, guys. Really, really fascinating stuff. Forecasting is never really that easy, and, and I think it's really interesting. I agree, actually, Professor Stephen. It was a fascinating question. I'm happy with myself um, <laughs> for that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but I, I think it's uh, it's difficult to forecast, uh, particularly when the conflict could go a multitude of different ways depending upon what the Russian military tend to do, but also how the how well the Ukrainians do in, in counteroffences. Uh, it's not all just in the hands of the Russians. I think we should keep that in mind. So we're going to bounce over to. I
4: uh good, good afternoon. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming and, and sharing um, what you are seeing. It is really informative for me, who is really just learning so much about uh, this conflict in this region of the world, which I will admit, and I've told Peter on many occasions, I don't have that much experience with. But what I do do know is um, U.S. trade. And in the United States today, and something that's kind of unprecedented, our Senate unanimously passed two bills that had been sent over from the House, uh, banning Russian oil and revoking normal trade relations. And in terms of both short and long term, because you mentioned, I think it was you, Stephen, who talked about this potentially being months, if not years long conflict. And knowing that particularly things like raw materials and metals come from this region of the planet to the United States, we don't have that many um, direct trades with Russia, but we do have a lot of relations for international economies through this region of the world that is impacted. I'm wondering if you can speak to, in terms of settlement, in terms of disruption of economic actions, is this something that you anticipate will benefit refugees in terms of finding longer term uh, economic solutions and the nation states that will be impacted by trade relations?
1: I think there's going to be a huge challenge. I think there's there's two fascinating aspects of this. The first is is how the ruble has rebounded. Initially, I think in President Biden had kind of boasted, I think in his in his when he came here about how the ruble had been crushed by these sanctions. It's rebound It's it hasn't rebounded to its full value, but it's rebounded quite a bit, and that shows you. In a sense, that Russia had really prepared when it was building up for this, both in terms of its reserves, but also in terms of the sense that with China and India neutral, both of whom have huge demands for gas and energy. And, you know, Germany in some ways taking some incredibly strong statements, but then. The European Union has even been debating whether they're going to ban gas. One thing to remember is there are different grades of gas, but in some degrees it's fungible. It's a global commodity. So if China buys most of its gas from Russia and India buys most of its gas from Russia and they divert that, it kind of can soften the blow for Moscow. So that's, that's interesting to see how they will sustain these sanctions, which are literally sanctions that we've never seen before. But if that degree of sanctions can't hurt Russia, then the question is, are are sanctions, if not impotent, are they they really an effective tool? Because they have not really slowed the war. They do not so far have seemed to make any of the Russian elites rethink things. It may hurt the Russian people, but is it really touching Putin anything more than symbolically? I know they talked about sanctioning his daughters. But when you've got billions of dollars stored away, when you prepared for this, is it really going to affect the decision makers? The second piece is how this impacts the world and the refugees. And that I really worry about, because if you look at Ukraine as being the breadbasket of Europe, you've had droughts in Africa that are not getting covered in terms of their own wheat production. So you're going to have that ramifications flow out i think you very accurately talked about the supply of precious metals that are really uh, a lot of them based in Russia and in China and how that plays out through this whole system. So I think there could be a lot of economic disruptions, which was already with COVID, already with the inflationary pressures that we've seen, that, and that could have ripple effects around the world and impact the uh, the refugees as well. And, and Sebastian, in another conversation we had, had a very fascinating point on the economic and trade aspects of this too, in that, as he mentioned, a lot of you, Ukrainian labor had kind of helped buoy the Polish economy. And you've had Ukrainians come across, but it's been women and children, not people that are really workers. So at the same time, you've had this strain on the Polish economy. You've got people coming over that often were dependents, and you've had the Ukrainian men go back to fight. So How this plays out economically over the longer term is going to be another fascinating question that has ripple effects throughout this region, Poland especially, but globally as well. I don't know,
2: Sebastian, if you want to add anything? I I, I can just comment on the first side of the uh, story, that is the oil and gas, because I'm familiar with this market from my uh, professional background. Uh, These are commodities uh, where you're trying to shift that trade. It doesn't happen overnight. This is a very uh, interdependent network of uh, traders, countries, companies, um, dependencies. Um, so at the moment, uh, European Union uh, member states are paying around 800 million euros a day. Wow. to russia for um, all the um, oil and gas uh, that's that is providing here and uh, we know that uh, china and india are willing to take some of that gas because they are energy hungry but there are no um, there are very few
3: direct connections this is uh, you know just pipelines because right. you can ship oil and
2: gas on tankers but it takes some time and it also has to be infrastructure in place and you can only right. do so much and as much as Germany is trying to get independent from Russian gas, but they are only using like 50, 15% of uh, their consumption. Com- gas consumption comes from Russia. Mm-hmm. And they're already saying that they want to uh, build 2 LNG and li- liquid uh, natural gas ports to be able to import uh, gas from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that is Middle East or um, yeah, US and Canada. Whereas uh, there are other countries... That are especially uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe that are completely dependent mm-hmm. on um, Russian um, oil and gas supplies uh, right now. So, for these, so there are as much as the sanctions are quite heavy and strong, but they don't really incorporate energy supplies right, right now as we are. Of course, the European Union is thinking about this, uh, but the cutoff will not be immediate. Yeah. It will also need to take some time. I would say, at least uh, a couple of years for the adjustment. Whereas if, if you want to, if China or India want to import more Russian gas, take it so. will take even more because you need to build a long, very long pipelines. Mm-hmm. But but I think, I hope that this is mm-hmm. go- really going to happen. But uh, you have to remember that uh, China and Russia are right now, you know, two autocratic states. The prim- primary target is really to take control of the world and fight US as much as they can. But altogether, Russia does not really want to become dependent on China. China also wants to have a predictable partner on the other side, like in terms of energy supplies. So if uh, Russia comes out wrecked Mm -hmm. from a conflict with uh, Ukraine, then it might somewhat disrupt oil and gas uh, supplies from Russia to China. And China doesn't doesn't really want that.
0: The relationship of Russia to China is is more nuanced than that. And thank you very much, Ayana, for for stimulating this uh, this very great tangent. Um, you know, both I think I think the Russian Chinese axis is is one that's overblown. China continues to uh, decrease its trade with Russia after the after the invasion, uh, whilst continuing to maintain its very strong relation, um, at least economic and trade relations with the West. So there, there's nothing they can really gain from sort of wholeheartedly supporting Russia more than in sort of symbolic things like they did in the vote today, April 7th, in the United Nations General Assembly, uh, in which they voted against the uh, the resolution which saw Russia suspended from the Human Rights Council. But moving on now, um, I want to circle back to Jaya.
5: Oh, perfect. Thank you, Piotr and Jacob, for arranging this event. Dr. Shraj, it's a pleasure to hear you again. And Sebastian, thank you for joining um, in such a, a difficult situation to spare the time. I will jump to my question. And it's really around um, asking you if you could describe an ideal response system to help refugees in a, situ- a national emergency like this. And for a little bit of context, I'm, look- I'm envisioning a triage of some sort with all kinds of help, providing sustainable and efficient support system. I envision taking advantage of the world's volunteers over the internet to translate, fill forms, uh, go through instructions. And uh, if you could talk a little bit about blood supply for transfusions for especially those in need of health those who are experiencing health circumstances that need blood donations that would be great i,
1: I think that's an excellent question because i think the key is it's not about pointing fingers you know it's not about saying oh this person you know we did at this point it's not you know we can do kind of what they could military calls a hot wash and think about it later but right now it's again it's not about who builds the fence around the you know, around the around the area so that traffickers can't get in or it's just somebody just needs to do it. And I think that's a key point because as you said, NGOs have so much energy and so much to bring, and we've seen that happen here. They were first on the ground. They were here. They moved before governments acted. They, they were so quick, but you do need some kind of structure someone to kind of be in charge and coordinate you know if you've got like if you have a symphony of the best the best players in the world and they all show up but you don't have a conductor or you don't have a sheet of music off to play off well, it's a disaster and that's in some sense what we've had here is we've had Amazing groups like World Central Kitchen has been here, and they deserve they deserve a fantastic food. There's Sikhs United here that deliver food. There's Doctors Without Borders that come here, and there's a lot of people with medical supplies. But if you don't have the logistics and the and the centrality to say, okay. We need a fence here for security. We need water here. We've got too much water in this place. We need to move it here. We've got to have, as you've mentioned, uh, which the Internet should enable, translators that can speak this. You know, trauma counseling has been one thing. If I had a magic wand, and again, this is just my quick take on it, you would have people in charge of each area. Like what they call when management um, authority accountability and responsibility, so you would have like say you had the Polish Red Cross in charge, they would have funding and resources and the capability to to oversee all the NGOs here and get the things done that need to get done. And I think the other thing that is really needed. So you need that kind of authority on the ground to figure out in the funding close to the ground, not far away in a capital where it's where it is now, where you've got to have these bureaucracies slowly get money out on the ground. And I think there's people to Sebastian's point, some of these UN organizations do want to help them. But there's so much red tape. There's so many bureaucratic forms. There's so many checks and balances. And that's important for transparency and anti-corruption but when there's people at risk you need to move that money fast you need to have people on the ground to do that so one thing is to have centralized kind of control at the at the ground level that can move money fast and move money around quick and resources working in partnership with NGOs the other thing that i think is missing and this is something that I think is somewhat of a legacy. I mean, there's there's some horrific history here, as you know, with, with Auschwitz and some of the other places that were in Poland but were not Polish. They were obviously Nazi installations. And some of the politi- politicians have said even banned the term of the use Polish camps. So I think that may have psychologically influence this idea that we're going to push out the refugees as fast as we can. We're going to get them through these points and send them out into Europe. And there, you know, there might've been a good instinct behind that, but, there wasn't the recording of where they're going. There wasn't as much monitoring of where they're going. There wasn't like maybe a central helpline like you've talked about that anyone can call. I've lost my child. I can't find my family. Where are they? Because they pushed it so fast and there hasn't been that centralized control, I worry you're going to have people exploited, people that can't find each other, people that can't loc- locate each So I think those two pieces both kind of a uh, you know a coordinated orchestra conductor that can that can that can manage things at the le- at that level and then kind of the the you know the lifeline of support systems that people can call to, to you know that transcends boundaries and transcends borders those are the two things that w- that I would see off the top of my head but Sebastian you've been on the ground I'm sure you have some some really great insights on, on what you think is needed
2: N- no it's it's absolutely right and then from day one we were trying to establish. Uh, who is really in control in some of these places, and as much as we could provide the uh, you know permanent staff to provide medical help, we also realized quite quickly that there is this crave for for uh, leadership, and there's this huge gap that nobody's filling. Uh, that this, this uh, leadership, this conductor, uh, if you like, is not there. And uh, we were asked to fill the gap uh, and uh, we just couldn't do it because of the huge lack of resources that we currently have. So we were trying to do the kind of a trial run, which then uh, our permanent presence of our crisis control teams um on the side of the uh, medical staff we managed to do it in a couple of locations and then uh, just to maintain that operation it turned out to be very very costly for us and it turned out that you know we run this operation with volunteers only and uh, luckily we managed to talk some uh, big uh, companies here to bring like you know trained and serious people they work for us to actually become our volunteers and and they were providing great help but it, it's, it's really difficult um, for us if we don't have funds to do it because we actually need to start compensating volunteers uh, for yeah. their hard work um, at some point, especially if you're looking at many months ahead of this conflict and you know, of this, uh, yeah. th- this huge uh, refugee influx. So you need, in order to manage something properly, you have to be there, and you have to give the yeah, yeah, tools yeah, yeah. to be able to do it. And if you don't have that, you can, of course, we can say, "Hey, we are in charge from now on." But then, if uh, you know, I'm there for uh, three days straight, I, I've got to go and sleep at some point, you know. Right. And somebody has to step in uh, and and carry carry on. Um, and then this is just one place, and of course, uh, one person per place is not enough because you have uh, a lot of refugees, and then dozens mm-hmm. of, uh, of other NGOs that yeah. have uh, hundreds yeah. of repre- uh, volunteers. And if you just start doing it without uh, without funds and without a proper plan, I mean, we came up with plans and we came up with uh, like structures, with budgets, and we presented this out right. uh, to, to um, uh, well, first our higher-ups uh, within our organization and then to some uh, other other international organizations that uh, came to us and said that they will release some funds. But as you said, you know there is so much red tape involved and so many strings attached that you know you need to have this approval and that approval yeah, yeah, yeah. and you have to fill out this uh, anti-corruption form and you have to do yeah. and, and uh, a this paperwork other money yeah uh, and, this, and, and, this, and this is, is what,
1: this is what's been shocking to me because there's there's these like ngos and groups and even individuals here that have like tens of thousands or, or millions of dollars even and then you've got the polish red cross that's supposed to be in charge of this and they're scraping for 16k to buy a used van but you the, know you it, have to
2: distinguish it, that we
1: are a regional right <laughs> right, right yeah of the of regional is part. different
2: to the
0: international which i think so yeah on. But, region, uh, go on stephen finish that point and then we'll yeah, uh, bounce yeah, that's,
1: over that's what i meant the people on the ground they can't get the things that they need to get to get basic things done and again this is not some some subsidiary report this is the major focus where you have people filming every day and going in cnn and showing the thing and they can't get the basic things they need to protect the people and to coordinate it and that to me is shocking and that's why you know we see the gofundme and some of the people at the camp the reasons they, they have they even have like uh like walkie-talkies and stuff to monitor the camp is because people had gofundme pages which shows you how the changes have happened but when the big organizations are sitting on all this money but it, the, the process to get it where it's needed is is broken there's a broken- it is
0: it's I, th- I think it brings us back around to one of those initial questions we, we touched upon isn't it you know this uh how um, charities actually work. A lot of uh, people feel disenfranchised is the word I'm trying to say um, um, with the uh, with this construction sort of crowdfunding uh, and other grassroots initiatives like that I think in recent years have been such a, a, a way to facilitate aid um, we've seen this in Haiti we've seen this in uh, many different theatres in Africa in Yemen as well. So really interesting and, and thank you Jaya, uh, Jaya for that great question. Next up we've got Den- I think it's got a slightly different thing. And then we'll, go, we'll, we'll bounce over to uh, Andrea for a question. But Denny, the floor's yours.
4: Hey, guys. Appreciate you guys
1: taking the time. And okay, so I have a few things I want to ask you about. They're kind of rumors. I want to see if you guys can help us out with them because there's a lot of rumors that are swirling. One of them is the Kyrgyzstan People's Republic. Is there a, such a thing attempting to be formed by Russia? Is is that happening? Uh, the second thing is a potential speedy win that Putin's trying to achieve by May 9th, which is the May mayday parade and the third thing is uh rumors of a gold back ruble keep seeing that a lot and just want to see if you guys can comment on any of those or yeah no i, I think we we get um there's a there's like a, a military the 82nd airborne does a briefing for everyone and they brief on some of these things but those things i haven't heard with any specificity so i wouldn't want to speculate about them because because uh i want to be clear about what we know what we because I think Me the ben- neither. Yeah, we we don't have direct information.
2: I mean, yeah. there is, uh, this 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 uh, <coughs> war is also a huge missing, uh, war, and so we, especially at the the very beginning of this conflict, we saw so much of it that it's just incredible. So of course, there is some kind of a structured um, organization that is feeding media and uh, social media and everyone with misinformation. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a Russian strategy. Create this storm of false information, of rumors. Yeah. And, you know, if you're trying to respond to all of this, it's just, it's simply impossible. Yeah. And I don't even follow all this because I'm you know, busy with my day to day and trying to, yes. uh, Operation and uh, we personally, I realized that we should have been doing this other way around. Start maybe from our fundraising from day one so that we could do our structures uh, better and help maybe more people. And but we, you know, I'm kind of a hands on guy, so we were trying to do everything with whatever we had, and it's just a drop in the ocean. Uh, but now we, i know that uh, we need to change our focus to actually gather funds and get ready for these next you know, waves right. of refugees that's uh, yeah, yeah no and
1: i think and i think the fact that it, it, ironically the fact that we're saying that we that we that we were not we don't have the depth to comment on this is is an important point because what you've seen so much in the media sometimes now is people commenting about things that they don't have direct information about, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I think it's so good to have someone like Sebastian talk about what's going on at the border because you hear so many people talk about, oh, we raised all this money. And, and I've seen this in the, in, even in these meetings that I have with the U.S. that they organize with the, with yep. the 82nd Airborne meetings, and other meetings, is they say, oh, everything's going great at the border Because they just get they don't they're they're actually not on the board. They're an hour away in a conference room and they say everything's great, and then you have people that are actually there every day, like Sebastian or you know, I've been there on and off, but people say no, that's not actually the case because they're relying on secondhand information and it's easy for things to get spun. Now that we're in an age where we have people on the ground, I think it's it's most important to get people The information from people on the ground that know about what they're talking about rather than second, third head speculation that can often be spun one way or the other. Yeah, really
0: good. um, Really good points. Uh, And and thanks, Denny, for those. Some of these, you know, points are, are difficult to to verify. But even today, I think it was the New York Times that came out revealing that, you know, there's been some unfortunate actions on the side of the Ukrainian military towards uh, Russian soldiers. I mean, to be honest, uh, are we really surprised after what's going on, the events in Butcher and things like that? But the point is, it's like, you know, you have to remain skeptical of the information you consume uh, and this sort of sensory informational overload that we're receiving, harrowing images, uh, disturbing videos, um, and just, you know, and so what the idea. The- Idea of this podcast, the global gambit is to, is to make sense of that, uh, as well as where we're hosting this from in the uh, Ukrainian Citrep room. But with that, I want to bounce over to Andrea, uh, oh. and then we'll probably land with Miriam's uh, as the last question because she is actually Polish, and I think that would bring us full circle. But uh, Andrea, the floor's yours.
6: Thank you, Piotr, uh, and to Stephen and Sebastian for uh, coming to us live from the ground. I'm asking my question. From the perspective of somebody who has uh, served in the field for both grassroots NGOs, the UN World Food Program, where I worked in building partnerships with the private sector to help actually make the deployment of uh, aid and food aid more efficient and faster, get food out faster, Uh, but also as someone who has survived um, in the tsunami uh, and been on the receiving end of um, the assistance, and been uh, with watching my watch while I waited, and knew the procedure at the UN level of how long it took those wheels to turn, the budgets to get going, and for for money to hit the ground. So. First, thank you for sharing such an accurate description of the real complete chaos that erupts when there is um, Uh these um, dream humanitarian crises, well, in fact, war. And um, I guess the questions uh, also had a lot of experience working on issues around child labor and human trafficking. And so um, I'm wondering in particular, my question is, what do you see some of, if you could speak to some of the procedures uh, that you're looking at enacting to both kind of document people, uh, women and minors as they're coming through, but also to, you know, any technology uh, that's being used or being discussed. Uh, In India, we had an example where we actually we're able to team people up with facial recognition technology that in a sh- very short period of time and kind of an emergency situation reunited people very quickly. It's, it's a controversial technology. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, if you can share your experience around that and, and also whether, you know, what your thoughts are around training the volunteers that come in, because as you rightly said, it's both a boon and a potential a uh, nightmare when you have so many, you know, well-intentioned people that want to help and then you get into a situation where you really do need some trained or semi-trained uh, professionals. So um, how is the training and the vetting of the volunteers going?
2: Just to speak to your first uh, uh, part of the question. Well, of course, there is this um, basically a uh, couple of uh, systems that I came across in terms of refugee registration and uh, volunteer registration and vetting of these volunteers. The government introduced their own um, volunteer registration system that uh, I think is not connected to any um, police database or Interpol Interpol database because we tried to put in some fake names and we still managed to register ourselves. Mm. Whereas on the other hand, there are some uh, private companies, tech companies that come into the field, and they introduce uh, their solutions that are well I, I actually haven't had a chance to really check if how operational they are but uh, they claim that uh, they have multiple layers of uh, verification of the volunteers such as if you especially um the car driver volunteers people that are willing to pick up refugees and drive them to some location mm-hmm there's this one company that uh, in particular that came over and they said that they, they have experience in this and they uh, the first level uh, works in a way that they use uh, credit card of a potential volunteer to screen if that person is who they really are, Mm -hmm. so that they have to punch in their phone number and then their credit card details and then somehow connect it to their bank Mm -hmm. account and then to the uh, cell phone company that vets this uh, phone number and then it comes back to the app. Just just like uh, these popular um, taxi applications where you just have to use these uh, um, on your phone number and credit card details uh, so that it verifies that you you is you and then right uh, and then you are registered but one of these companies apart from that they also said that the database is also connected to to Interpol database yeah. so their screening will be um, very good but uh, I heard today that uh, this was not really true so mm-hmm. uh, again if this is misinformation, I don't know or if this is uh, this is uh, uh, true I I can't speak to that but uh, there seem to be a lot of companies showing up with uh, good solutions uh, but there are so many of those and I, I get a feeling that nobody's really coordinating these Isn't efforts like, and nobody's kind of uh, working with uh, tech giants to pick yeah, the right yeah, solutions yeah. and implement them on the, yeah.
1: on the floor. It's just this this governmental solution that is not great, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, th- this, is a, this is a great point. You talked about the technology and, and it's pro- part of the problem, not having like a conductor, but also not having like a system that's set up beforehand. Because you would think after you mentioned the tsunami, you mentioned all the the incredible tough situations that you've seen it seems like there should be an, an, a system that okay every time this happens we've got a we've got a technology built that you can register people you can you can check them and you can do that very quickly and efficiently whether that's through facial recognition or other means but instead what you've got as Sebastian has described is you've got a million companies and there's always kind of contractors running around pitching I've got this solution I've got that solution and you have to learn and test them on the fly which is exactly the time you don't have you don't want to be learning and testing it on the fly you've got a million other variables Sebastian's getting no sleep you've got volunteers running in and out for weeks that that you know that, 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 that automatically leave so it's an incredibly chaotic and tough situation situation. So I think the more of a framework you can establish in the future so that things yeah. are ready to go when these situations the self solutions. Yeah, self solutions and whether it's the UN that has that capability or the EU or somewhere or there's an international standard then I think, as you've mentioned, you're going to, you know, the sad thing is in this world, you're still going to have tsunamis. You're going to have crises. They may not be on this scale, but if you had a kind of an off the shelf thing ready to go, it would make this much easier. And a kind of rules of the road for we need a conductor. We need a system. We need this. Here's the checklist of what you do. Maybe you wouldn't have this ongoing crisis. And this is this is the biggest shock. Like I said, there's been changes. It's not the same volume that it was early. You've got more exhaustion now, but you've got a lower volume. But what I'm most shocked about is this lack of a conductor where there was jostling about the conductor early, and it's still not settled now. And every day that doesn't get settled, you mentioned trafficking in those risks, it puts more people at risk. And that's that's the thing that kind of burns my heart more than everything is, are we going to have women or children that are put at risk for trafficking now because we couldn't decide on who was a conductor to, to, to set the rules of the road five weeks ago when, when everyone knew these issues were still out there.
0: I, I think that's very true. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of work in the climate resilience and adaptation area. Obviously, um, I think that uh, what Andrew was going to add as well is uh, you know we need better, better emergency resilient networks and social safety mechanisms. Just not only in a sort of conventional forced migration sense um, from conventional warfare, but um, which we thought maybe was over in Europe and clearly not now. Um, but also from transnational issues and uh, and things like climate change uh and and even pandemics uh you know as that forcibly makes people flee to, to prevent sort of infection or something like that so very good points. Winding down the uh, discussion now, I want to give the mic over to Miriam, who is actually Polish uh, and has been a, a, an integral member of this community.
3: Yes, thank you so much. It's so moving and incredible, both um, Professor Stephen and also um, Sebastian, to thank you so much for what you're doing on the ground. It actually makes my heart grow and thunder, and, uh, and I'm very proud. Dziękuję bardzo. To praca, którą Państwo wykonujecie. Uh, so I just wanted to to actually say a few words in Polish to thank them, and and also I wanted I am kind of concerned about the future of this entire process. So we I kind of started with it in the beginning, so it's nice that we're coming back to the end long term. So and long term meaning I see the back and forth with European Union and giving some financial support to Poland. We're going to have school expenses and uh, housing expenses and medical expenses for a longer period of time for those uh, people who are actually taking care of the farm, Ukrainian families and as well obviously the Ukrainian guests as we call them in Poland. I mean I'm in New York but it's uh, still I mean I have all my friends in, in Poland and I'm watching it from far but I'm very concerned about that and I, I see that there's back and forth with European Union, union it's not so clear so it's not only red tape. How do we How do we go there and and are they going to step up? Thank you so much.
2: I know that there is uh, a lot of talk in the European Union about uh, providing help to refugees, uh, not just in Poland, but uh, across the board, uh, really. And I know that, uh, well, I actually attended a meeting. uh, It's called the Community of Interest meeting that is organized by the U.S. military um, here in the Rzeszów area where um, a representative of the European Union uh, is always present and that person said oh we have all these funds uh, I, the number was dropped there was something around 2.1 billion euros or something mm-hmm. like this that they raised and they have to uh to spend on this uh crisis i i'm only concerned um about speed how the these funds are released and the accuracy of you know whether they're going to really hit the ground and when and how um actually miriam rightly said that uh this crisis reflects daily lives of um, Polish people because there are so many refugees in so many schools in Poland that um, the lessons have to be cancelled. Actually, people stay and live in these schools and the they know So much stress, and there will be even more stress on uh, medical services in the long term. So somebody's got to be done, like permanent shelters have to be put in place and who's going to be building them if we are suffering uh, a shortage of uh, workforce, Uh, who's going to fund them? And it's, of course, going to take a long time Mm. to put these places in. So if if you look at the uh, short to long term, Uh, of that uh, crisis, uh, you know, the whole Pandora box, so to speak, of uh, hundreds of thousands of different issues that are just waiting there and going to, you know, they're going to blow up at some point. And I think you raise such a a key point because
1: the way these things tend to cycle uh, and, you know, you see, I, I know the other caller mentioned like the tsunami. We were with someone today that was talking about the Haiti earthquake. When things happen, all this money pours in and all these volunteers pour in and everybody has this really heartfelt need to do things. And they talk about, oh, we're going to spend all this money. Then when it's off the front pages and if there's if there's still, you know, a lot of Ukrainians living in Poland, there's there's still people that have taken them into their houses There's still schools that are overloaded. Um, What kind of strain is that going to be put in? Is there still going to be the money and attention and resources? Somebody talked about in Haiti that there were still people living in USAID tents years later. I think we heard that tonight because people after the initial rush, is there a sustainment? And I think what, what our goal is, is really for Ukraine to rise from these ashes stronger again and for Poland to be rewarded for all the work that it's done, for everyone to thrive, but I think the, the donor community that's outside of that needs to needs to stay in this for the long haul to make sure that uh, that that happens, because uh, it would be a tragedy for for this to have worse ramifications than it already has.
2: Absolutely, and the
0: conflict needs to stop right now. Thank you very very much for that great final question, there, Miriam, uh, and and I want to say a tremendous thank you to, uh, to Sebastian uh, and. Professor Stephen, as we've heard tonight, uh, the gentlemen are coming to us live from about an hour and a quarter from Ukraine's uh, western border. Uh, are there any leave- uh, final thoughts, uh, g- gentlemen, that you'd like to leave us with? Any sort of recommendations, anything we can do whilst this conflict? We'd like to see it drawn down and end. I fear that it's not going to for a, a while. Uh, anything you'd like to to leave the, uh, the audience and, and podcast
1: listeners with? There's ways to get money to people that need to coordinate this on the ground and to understand that people like Sebastian are the ones that are really making a difference on the ground. To really listen to what they have to say because they're the ones that hear, hear that see the things. And and too often their voice gets lost and filtered through the leaders and through the spin at higher levels. But to really understand this, and it's Piotr, I think you get a lot of credit for this too. Hearing from the people on the ground is, I think, is the most important important thing to do to to really get to grapple with this and, and to thank Sebastian for, for all that he's done and the sacrifices he's made and, and all the people of Poland have made to, to address this. Thank you everyone that uh, was willing to uh,
0: hear us out. But well, thank you very much gentlemen. If you want to be part of the next live discussion as part of this social podcasting experience then do download Clubhouse or your uh, version of social audio app and be sure to engage with us next time. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. But until next time, this
6: is. The Global Gambit.